It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Ellen Fells. Ellen, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you, Lachlan. Ellen, it's a, it's a real thrill, I'm going to say, uh, to have you on the on the Become Your Own Superhero show. I didn't know a lot about you directly, but having done a lot of research on you, I've come to realise that you featured in my news feed during the early 2000s, at least, uh, when I arrived in Australia, um, a lot. You've, you've held many roles. Probably the most famous that I can think of is the chairman of the ACCC. And I was keen to start off, what's your favourite memory of working with the ACCC? Uh, an early cartel case where we broke up a really big cartel between TNT, Transport, and... Uh, mm, another um, big business, and um, it, it was the first really big cartel uh, that anyone had broken up in a spectacular way, and we got a what was then a, a, a record fine. It was only uh, five and six million, but um, they've grown since then. But previously the fines had been about... 250,000. We also got front page coverage and we let the world know we're we're serious about breaking up cartels. So if I was to give you this $20 to make GST go away, that's probably not going to be appropriate in this kind of environment, would you think? Far from it. And um, in the old days, um, there was more relaxation about meeting business informally and so on, but these days, no longer. Well, I'm keen to explore where you developed your ethics from, Alan, because in reading some of the your your background, they've even set investigative uh, journalists and, and private investigators onto you, and it all came back with nothing. Where did this come from? Well, uh, the reason they found nothing was that I do lead a pretty boring life, and I think that the detectives that followed me may have practically died of boredom on the job. But my, um, uh, and, and someone did tell me that ethics is not that well known in uh, some businesses. They think it's a, a county in England ethics. <laughs> but um, I, I think I got quite a strong moral sense from two sources, my parents and also my school. I went to a school in Perth, a Jesuit school, where they conveyed the importance of leading a good, honest, ethical life and contributing in some way to the public, not just to your own life. And that has broadly stuck with me ever since. Do you think you've become more concentrated on your religious uh, beliefs during this COVID area? Look, not really, to be uh, honest. I've been a little bit lucky during the COVID area that I've happened to have a really very busy, almost full-time job being on a Victorian Royal Commission on Mental Health. So the impact on me has been quite small, and then as to the religion, well, I do practice it. I'm in a parish, a Catholic parish in South Yarra, 
which has done great social work, including uh, helping me set up a place where people with serious, persistent, lifelong mental illness can live. So I, I think of the parish as a very good community that I engage in. Are you referring to the Haven? Yes, I'm referring to the Haven. That's accommodation for people with lifelong mental illness. Um, it started out, there's a group of people, parents, who had children that needed some long-term uh, looking after, including stable accommodation. A lot of people with mental illness don't have stable accommodation and in the extreme they may leave hospital having been, so to speak, fixed up. Then if they sleep under a bridge that night, they'll relapse, they'll be back in quite soon. And others live in quite unsatisfactory accommodation which may be insecure, there may be people around that they're scared of that may be prone to violence, maybe on drugs and so on. So a lot of them have insecure, unstable and temporary accommodation and that's a really bad um, foundation for trying to improve the mental health of people. So I've always thought it's really important to pay attention to the accommodation needs of people with mental illness, just not alone their mental health condition. Well, I suppose or, or shelter is uh, Maslow's second or third hierarchical need, isn't it? And and you can lose sight of that if you take a medical-only focus on it and, you know, you give someone a pill or give them some counselling and all of that, that's only an aspect of it. And also as regards counselling or psychiatric treatment, that's fine, but that's typically an hour a week, an hour a month, whatever. Uh, what about the other 167 hours of the week? What goes on there? And that's why uh, engagement with families is very important where it's possible. And also just having a safe, stable place to live in, it creates good conditions for improvement in your mental health. And this is something that's very close to your heart, Alan. There's a, a history of mental health across uh, certainly your wife's side of the family and, and you directly. Are, are you comfortable sharing some of that information with us? So my daughter, Isabella, who's now 49, she's had a serious mental illness. She had a troubled um, childhood, but she wasn't actually Sorry. psychotic. She wasn't actually um, anything um, that constituted schizophrenia. Um, but when she was about 25, she had a really serious mental illness problem. Um, and um, so she went into hospital and was put on medicines which suppress the psych psychosis aspect, but they have... Uh, quite significant side effects and um, they don't really cure things that much. They just suppress uh, the worst symptoms. So uh, then questions arose about how she would live her life for the next 50 years or whatever. Um, it was fairly difficult just living at home um, and also... The other places we found for her to live in were not terribly suitable. So a group of parents, um, we approached that South Yarra Parish and they kindly provided an empty convent. The Victorian government then gave us some money to turn that into suitable accommodation. And then now under the NDIS, the 
costs of staffing there are met. They need some people on site to keep an eye on them. In your book, Alan, you've spoken about the the potential cost savings of getting this mental health issue right. And you're a, you're a firm believer that we can save the country uh, a significant amount of money that would not need to be spent otherwise by rectifying mental health. What is what is the the proposed solution that you have? Well, look, there are many many dimensions to it. It's a huge problem, mental health, in that something like three percent of the Australian population, let's say seven hundred thousand people, have got. Um, serious forms of mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar, and another 15% or more have got pretty serious and significant mental health problems of depression, anxiety, uh, personality disorder, and so on. So that's a large chunk of the population have got mental health problems. And um, the cost of the current treatment is about 4% of GDP. That's a lot of money. It's getting on to nearly $100 billion a year in cold economic costs. And um, we need to make it a higher priority for governments, for the community, and um, we also need to organise the system a bit better. They are connected system's not that well organised, partly because it's not been a terribly high priority. It's not a very popular illness. I remember first health minister I ever met said to me at the end of my comments, well, it's not very popular. You know, I get more votes supporting other illnesses. It's something that's very, very close to my heart, Alan, because in my own journey of, of transformation, I experienced at times pretty horrendous uh, anxiety. And for me, it was directly related to lifestyle and the, the stress that I put on my body through drugs, alcohol, financial, you know, like it's this whole storm, this perfect storm that I put on myself. And it's, it's, you know, I've, I've been blessed that I've figured out how to sort it out. And for me, it's been through diet and exercise. Mm. I'm, a, I'm a, also a customer of Gary's Quality Meats down in Paran. I think Gary said to me today that uh, your, one of your daughters, uh, is it Teresa? Yes. Which she was down there uh, today or, or the other day. And um, that's been a game changer for me. I'm curious to know with this, this Royal Commission, what are you starting to uncover about mental health that you didn't know previously? Well, just one comment first. I mean, your case shows something that is quite important, and that is that people who have alcohol and substance abuse problems and or mental health, there can be recovery. Um, it's, uh, if we work on it, we'll get much better results than at present. So far as the Royal Commission is concerned, um, we were... Uh, told officially, if you like, by the Premier when he announced it, that the whole mental health system is broken and it needs a fundamental review. And so we're looking at the whole system uh, from many, many aspects. Um, first of all, we're looking at the stages of care, that is when you maybe go to a GP or a psychologist and other forms of so-called primary care. Um, then we're looking at what happens if your problems are more severe than that, and we generally call that community mental health, and that's a very weak part of the system. Then if it's so bad that you're in hospital, that's acute. And there's also emergency treatment. So we're going through all those phases. Uh, if you want to really extend it, we also look a bit at self-management questions there, important, and also the impact on the family. So that's one thing, the system. But there are also 
a whole lot of other dimensions to it. I mean, take the problem of prisons. A large part of the pop, large part of that uh, population has a mental illness. Prisons are said to be the new asylums. Um, we're looking at housing challenges. We're looking at mental health in schools. We're looking at mental health and what happens at work for people with mental illness. Uh, we're looking at young, adolescent, older people, adults, uh, and so on. So there are many, many dimensions to looking at the whole system, and it's made especially complicated by the overlap between Commonwealth and state sharing functions um, in this system. Do you have any insight into what's going to happen to the general population from a mental health point of view during and post-COVID? Yes, I think it's uh, adding to the problems. One way of describing it is that let's imagine the blood pressure of everyone in the community went up 10%. So some people wouldn't notice it or they'd feel a little bit worse. Um, then another lot would really feel it and then some with high blood pressure, it would get worse or they would die. So uh, we're all experiencing mental health pressures on us right now. And so I reckon the mental health of many ordinary people is stretched. We all feel it. But the people who've got some kind of pre-existing mental health problem, it scales up to being quite serious and it can lead, in the case of acute, to even worse than that. Uh, people have been forecasting also that suicide rates will go up. At the moment of speaking, the measured suicide rate has not gone up, but I'd be surprised if it doesn't. Is that a, is that a conservative statement, Ellen, in your own opinion? Uh, yes. I mean, just on the suicide, I just wanted to be careful in commenting on it because the data at this point don't show a rise but they will, and the data are adequate for picking up. They may not pick up all suicide, but changes in the statistics of suicide are fairly reliable. Yeah, well, it's, um, I only ask, I'm not trying to get a scoop or anything, it's just I'm genuinely curious, and I was talking with a friend of mine this morning about this, and I've got something to, that's just a thought, uh, something that you know that ties into what I was saying just before, Alan. I fundamentally believe that mental health could be dramatically improved. I'm not saying you can fix. You know, there's a lot of nuances to what's going on. I fundamentally believe that you could rectify the majority of the mental illness in this country through diet, and I'll explain why. In in the four. Five years I've sort of been focused on this big transformation. I've immersed myself in as much information as a man can take in. About 400 books, countless podcasts, reading from all angles. And I'm very, very careful not to take the information in an echo chamber. So I do try and take as many sides as possible. But in learning about how the gut works, and when I was able to remove alcohol like initially, uh, and then I was able to remove gluten, which I was incredibly intolerant to, which which caused a lot of uh, heartburn issues, which I had for 17 years, which I was on medication for, which like the psychiatric medication only, you know, took away the the symptom, didn't didn't address the cause. Um, when I was able to, to rectify and fix my gut health, my mental health went through the roof. And, you know, it's no secret that like 80 to 90% of the dopamine and the serotonin, the oxytocin that's generated in the human body comes from the gut. And in our modern diet, which is incredibly saturated with a lot of seed oils, you know, a lot of processed, heavily processed carbohydrate, that type of thing seems to, you know, when we're getting fatter and sicker day by day, there's a whole other issue with metabolic health. And I certainly the fatter and sicker I was, Ellen, 
the worst my mental health was. And it's now no no coincidence, I think, that my mental health's been about 11 out of 10 for the last two years, existing almost purely on animal protein. And I've gone through my business, I nearly went bankrupt like three or four times. My partner and I, my fiance and I have gone through pregnancy challenges with miscarriages and a bunch of other, you know, stuff, stuff that would, that would really mentally push people. And I'm just, I'm keen to know your thoughts on that as an idea. Well, I'm um, very open to ideas of that sort because my uh, ex-Western Australian compatriots um, got a Nobel Prize for identifying the fact that ulcer problems were actually due to some bacteria in your stomach, not due to other things. So just brings out the importance of gut and all of that. And I'm also very concerned about the fact that the physical health of people with severe mental illness and ordinary, if I less severe but still serious mental illness is well below average. The life expectancy of people with schizophrenia is 20 years less than the rest of the population. And there are many other uh, pieces of evidence indicating their very poor physical health. And it tends to be somewhat neglected in treatment. So I do think uh, physical health is relevant to mental health. Um, At the same time, uh, I believe, and I don't think you're saying it, um, I believe or denying it, I think there are quite a few fundamental causes of mental illness. My list of major causes is, number one, there's a genetic factor. Uh, Number two, there can be trauma and environment and other effects like family violence and other trauma. Number three is the kind of socioeconomic environment you're brought up in bad surroundings. And number four are kind of behavioural things. For example, uh, alcohol and drug abuse uh, and some other behavioural things. So um, I think of there being quite a few drivers of mental health problems uh, and they vary for each person. It's not quite like a standard medical problem, you know, like a broken leg or something that's pretty clear about cause, effect, cure. Um, Mental health is a lot more complicated. But I do think the physical health side of mental illness has been over-neglected. When you get mental health treatment, the practitioner is not interested in your physical health. If you have a mental health problem and you go to, say, a GP, there is a lot of evidence that they tend to discount your problem. So if I go to a GP, say I've got a sore back, I'm believed it's taken seriously. If I have a mental illness, they are not so interested. Um, And also the combination of the treatments doesn't happen um, very well. Having said that, um, one of the quite big problems is that the main medicines available for suppressing psychosis, the main medicines for people with schizophrenia who just become terribly driven by voices in their head, uncontrolled behaviour, Shaking. Those medicines are associated with a big jump in people's weight and they find it just impossible to diet. Um, so, again, it's a rather complex problem. Well, with your permission, after this interview, Alan, I'm going to introduce you to a, a, a woman, a Dr. Georgia Ede, who's an American woman, who's a, a nutritional-focused psychiatrist who I'll just happily send you a link of a YouTube video which you might find really beneficial. Sure. Um, 
I, I totally understand and accept that there's no silver bullet for this. Uh, a lot of the, the stuff that I've been reading links these poor diets to uh, an inflammatory res- response in the body and, and a, um, a fluctuation of insulin and the things that all seem to trigger the other stuff. Certainly with genetics, you've got you know the cards that are dealt, um, but you need a trigger. And one of the cruel things that I learned about the medication that I was on, Alan, for the heartburn, which was a Meprazole or Somac um, or a Zantac type thing, which is one of the top five most prescribed medications uh, in, the, in the country, certainly maybe even the world, uh, is that it inhibits the absorption of iron, calcium, and B12. Uh, all of the, the three things, uh, certainly iron and B12, you need to generate those feel-good hormones and the chemicals. So um, it's really fascinating, this whole subject of diet, something I could talk about forever, I'm sure, but uh, it's a real uh, thrill for me to be able to port- throw this question to someone who's running this whole uh, initiative, and we, we look forward to seeing what the results are, and I'm, and I'm really happy that you're open to hearing these ideas because that's one of the frustrations that I've had uh, talking to medical professionals who at university don't get any training on nutrition or very little you know, a few days or a week. And, and I want to be part of a movement that's going to change that, educate our primary carers and our medical people to improve um, many chronic illnesses that can be sorted out with changes in diet and lifestyle, in my opinion. Good. Speaking of exercise, you, uh, you were once voted the third most powerful man in the country. Uh, but in the gym... You were equally powerful, and according to James Peterson, my friend, who trained you, you were able to leg press a thousand pounds in your day. Is that true? I don't know if it was a thousand pounds, but I've got very strong legs and uh, not particularly strong arms or shoulders. Um, so if I get a chance to do a leg press to show off, I will do so. James is probably referring to the fact that. There was a program of Australian Story done years ago about me and they came to his gym and I uh, was on display. I decided I'd go for a leg press and I pushed a fair bit of weight and then the following day I got this uh, few emails from people saying, uh, obviously, you were using cardboard weights uh, and so on, but no, I'm, I'm for some reason I've got strong legs and the rest of me is just ordinary. Well, you were uh, looking at photos of you and you're a young man, Alan. You were a strapping, strapping lad and a very keen cricketer, from what I can tell. Yep. So, um, I was a keen cricketer, uh, and I'm still really interested in it. Um, I, when I was really young, when I was about eight, somehow or other I learned how to do leg spins, top spins, wrongums, and I could do good outswingers. And um, I did extremely well. And indeed, I was so good, um, I got some uh, professional coaching. But interestingly, despite the fact that I was really good at that and got very good results in competitive cricket. Um, As I got older, I lost my accuracy. So I could then, I can to this day, do, you know, a wrong and all of that. But um, I, I had this problem that I had a somewhat unbalanced, unorthodox bowling action and it required a miracle of balance to be able to bowl accurately. Now, when you're eight or ten, you just do those balancing things without any trouble. But after I got to about 12 or 13 and put on a bit of weight, I started being inaccurate. So I could bowl every so often a deadly leg spin, up there with Warney, in my opinion. But that would be one ball in set five um, and then the others uh, would be smacked to the boundary. Do you remember your best ever bowling figures, Alan? Uh, To this day, 
10 for 23, my school against Scotch College under 10s in 1951, I think. I hope that's on a on a plaque somewhere in that school. And your your best ever batting performance? Um, I got um, I think I got one hundred and sixteen for university seconds, and I was on the verge of being in uni first. But we had five Sheffield Shield players in that team when I was there. It was extremely talented, but I never quite got into first grade, but I was a good second grade player. Now, my other batting achievements were um, I had a batting average of 85 when I played in the United States, Um, but possibly the opposition was not very good (laughs) and so on, but there you are. Was this with Duke University? Yes, that's right. There are a few Anglophiles around and we played cricket and we got a few Americans in to help us get up our batting averages. Brilliant. And there's another batting uh, innings that you've neglected to share with us, Alan, which is uh, you were scored a 92 to win a game crippled with a hamstring injury. That's right. So I was, uh, I had a very lowly role in the famous University of Cambridge Economics Department but they made me captain of the cricket team, which elevated my social standing nearly to the level of the great world-famous professors in the department. And I was their top batter. And I found playing English social cricket, I did well. Australians are more aggressive, uh, less defensive in their batting style (coughs) and in their whole approach to cricket, at least then. Uh, and probably still in social cricket. So I did score a memorable 92 or three for Cambridge. Um, when I, and I pulled my hammy fairly early and I had, had a runner. And then tragically we were just off the pace and I took the risk and my runner, runner got run out. Oh, that was mainly... <laughs> because I told him to run on the assumption that the throw back would not be accurate. And was a child being born at this time as well, Alan? That's right. So I, um, following day, um, <coughs> I think it was my other daughter, Teresa, was being born and um, my wife woke at three in the morning and, Explained the baby was on the way. <coughs> so she got up and um, helped me get out of bed and helped me get dressed. And then um, I explained that I couldn't drive her. So um, she then fetched a taxi, made me a cup of tea. We arrived at the hospital who thought that I was the patient, but it was explained that I just had a hammy, that was all. And she was going to have a baby. Not a very auspicious start to my fatherhood. And it's very well documented that a hamstring tear is way more painful than giving birth, just for the record. I'm certain it is. I'm I'm a huge fan of cricket, Alan. I've been playing since I was a young man, and my association with Melbourne University has been in its 15th season now. And I, at times, really do attribute the club to saving my life um, in terms of keeping me on the straight and narrow. How have you found cricket's influenced your life? Well, um, I found, um, I learned a few things from it. I learned all about um, how, I mean, I learned that to succeed you have to practice When you're out there in the middle and batting, you have to concentrate and to watch the ball. And then uh, I learned a bit about um, winning and losing, uh, that losing happens, and a bit about trying to be a good sport and the rules. 
And I did once hear Greg Chappell give a pretty good talk about the fact that most batsmen, good batsmen, fail mostly. And to be a good batsman, you have to learn how to cope with failure. He said that even the best bats only score well every one innings in two or three. And so how do you deal with this failure? And he said he'd learn a lot from that. I think I think there's much to learn from it. And what's Alan Fell's greatest failure? Um, well, um, there's a fairly long list <laughs> of secret failures. <laughs> um, there were some... Um, of the odd disasters. Um, and I occasionally look back on my life and I think I could have done that better. My education was good, but I could have done better, made a few better choices there uh, than in your personal life of, of um, not really had any big problems, no marital bust-up or affairs or things like that, but probably uh, far too much attention to work and not enough to the personal life. Yeah, that's telling you that without (laughs) details. I've thrown you under the bus there, Alan. I'm probably more curious to know, like, and I use the term failure um, with tongue-in-cheek because I I don't like using those words for my own uh, vernacular. And, it's more about the lesson that we learn. You know, what, what's the greatest lesson that you've ever learned? Um, well, maybe a couple. On, on the whole, I try to tell myself that life is about being helpful to others and putting them first. I'm, I don't really do that. That's the trouble, but I keep telling myself that's what it's about. And then the next thing is that you are responsible for your own actions. That's kind of an important thing to remember at all times and it should guide your behaviour and should guide your learning from shortcomings in your behaviour. You uh, spent a lot of time travelling in your life, Alan, and and even as a young man you travelled all through India and Sri Lanka and Pakistan in the early 1960s, which is pretty pretty rare at the time, I I can only imagine, given, you know, the availability of uh, the internet and having to, you know, follow a Lonely Planet guide. But what's your favourite travel story of of being on a plane? Um. My unfavourite is um, that I was on a plane for 54 hours once. Um, It was meant to go from, um, I think it was from Perth to London, but it got horribly diverted and it was extremely unpleasant experience. Uh, My favourite travel story is distinct from, I mean, I've been on planes, I've got my share of being on a plane stories. Actually, I was um, once on a Qantas flight and the attendant asked me what would I like, tea, what sort of tea, and, you know, I'm extremely witty, in case you didn't know, extremely. (laughs) And so um, instead of saying herbal, I said horrible, you know, meant to be a pun. And so she got it and she said, oh, right, horrible tea, fun, but which particular one? All our teas are horrible. I'm going to have to dig a little bit deeper. I want to hear your favourite plane ride to Canberra story. Oh, by far and away, I was travelling Canberra to Sydney economy and I sat ne- posh spice posh Eckham sat next to me um, it was in about 1998 and I didn't recognize her 
And uh, to keep it short, there was a reason she was travelling so humbly. Um, and anyway, we had a very pleasant talk. And then um, we went to, uh, we got off the plane. I was, I was fairly sure she was telling the truth, but I had a slight suspicion that she might have been making it up. But we got off the plane and um, a lot of teenage children started following us. Anyway, we went to the baggage and um, this fellow came up and um, she said, oh, Alan, this is my husband. And so I said to him, what's your name? And she said, oh, it's David. And, you know, and she said, uh, oh, and I said, what do you do, David? And he said, in this humble way, I'm a footballer. And I thought, I looked down my nose a bit, no no offence to footballers, but I looked down my nose a bit and I said, look, you go and while you're getting your wife's luggage, collect my red bag too and I'll stay talking to your charming wife. So David Beckham came back with my red bag and graciously gave it to me. That's my best plain story. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad we got there in the end, Alan. <laughs> I, lo- I heard that story uh, when reading your book and I, and I uh, you know, 1998 I think was peak Spice Girls too. Like they were really killing it. And the fact that you didn't recognise it makes their story so much better because you would have been in, what, late uh, late 50s, 58 at that time? It was um, um, she had just broken up with them and she's doing a CD album of her own. I, I think I bought it. Um, paid a lot of money for it. Uh, CDs were pretty expensive back then. But uh, you were pretty instrumental in help bringing that price down, Alan. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it was a bit controversial, but we um, the price was propped up by import restrictions and I ran a successful campaign to get rid of them and that brought the price down a bit. Okay, so let's explore this a little bit. Not, not the CDs, the, the influence side of things, Alan. What, what it's a, what's a skill that people can, when they're listening and watching this, can take this away and implement it in their own lives to help them influence better what are some key takeaways from what you've learned over your 60 plus years in the game well in public life um it's being determined to act in the public interest and not to be deterred by pressures not to do so and when i say acting in the public interest that generally means just sticking to the law but not backing off for improper reasons or because you're scared or something like that. Have you ever feared for your life when you were in the ACCC or any of the other roles you've had? Not particularly, no. Have you ever turned down bribes over the course of your career? No, no, I've never never had a bribe. It's probable... I was hoping it would be obvious to people that I wouldn't take a bribe. I have seen people who get very compromised. I'm not not quite a bribe, but they are looking forward to maybe a post-retirement benefit or a job. I did know someone who um, I thought went much too far in that direction and he hinted to me that on his retirement he'd been promised a job by uh, people who's regulating. And then I'm almost certain that the day after his retirement he called them and thought, oh, sorry, that vacancy's just been filled. Sorry. Who, who have been your favourite politicians to work with over the years, Alan? Um, like from a sense of humour point of view, it could be anything. Well, I did actually almost strangely like the very first one I ever dealt with, Peter Spiker, who 
um, was, I think he was Dutch-born. He was Labour. Um, he was, um, I think he was a plumber or carpenter or something. And he didn't expect to get into Parliament in the early 80s. And when he did, he had to ask where Parliament was so he could find his way there. And he had to buy a suit. Uh, and he was Consumer Affairs Minister. And he really had to, um, uh, he really had no background in subject, but he, he really had an underlying serious commitment to the public interest and to consumers uh, and the impact on ordinary people of things you were doing. So I did learn quite a lot from Peter Sparker. And then there have been plenty of others. They all had strengths and weaknesses. Um, Howard had incredible experience. So um, I knew a lot about petrol. But there was a big problem about petrol when the GST was brought in. He'd been dealing on and off with petrol for 30 years and he knew it inside out. And uh, between us, we were able to figure out solutions to complicated problems. Um, and then, you know, the various prime ministers, Hawke and Keating, they were good in different sorts of ways. Um, I was also um, very impressed with Bill Kelty of the ACTU, even though he wasn't a politician. His name's vaguely familiar from uh, your books, or the two books that I've read uh, in doing my research for you, Alan. I, uh, I've had a few other guests on the on the podcast and it with various backgrounds regarding health and well-being and a bunch of other stuff, and I've, I've um, thrown the idea at times and asked them what they thought uh, about me potentially running for Prime Minister in a semi-hypothetical scenario. And what do you think? What characteristics do you think make a really great Prime Minister? Well, um, I, th I think you can rattle off a list about determination, purpose, a, uh, a sense of ethics, um, you know, an understanding of economics, a grasp of people and so on. Uh, and it's a bit hard to label it more than that. Um, Dropping back a level about leadership, I do think that um, people can misestimate um, the importance of personal leadership. In other words, I'm not a great, I'm not a big believer in great man or great person theories of leadership. I think there's surrounding circumstances that just mean some leaders, no matter how good, can't do much. And that is, to a degree, the problem these days. There's so many constraints, the impact of pressure groups, media pressures and so on, make it quite uh, difficult to make a huge difference. But I do think that within all those constraints, having one person rather than another can lead to significant differences. You know, if you were a leader, if I were a leader now, um, I wouldn't measure myself by how much I'd change the world in general. I'd probably measure how well I did against all the constraints um, that applied to me. Do you think it's a clever idea to spend some some time and money educating the general public about what role the Prime Minister has and, and what government has? And Because one of the things that I think about a lot is, is that uh, people have these unrealistic um, expectations of their politicians. And I think education, as you are, you know, you set up a, a university, the ANSOG, um, to, to educate politicians to become better politicians, right? The Australian New Zealand School of Government. And I, and I think if we educated the public more on the expectations, would that not 
allow people not to be so up in arms, particularly with what's going on in the world at the moment? Well, that would help. But just to um, just to get into an argument, um, just to be contrary, um, sometimes the more you educate people, the more aware they are of their own interests. And I think that's also applied a little bit in religion. Um, I think in the Middle East, two or three hundred years ago, uh, the Christians the Jewish people, the Muslims, coexisted quite well. They got on with one another and actually almost practised the same and there was, you know, a real mingling. Now, that has not really continued. There are a number of reasons, but I do think in some ways um, sharpening up their knowledge of their own religion has been slightly counterproductive in that regard. But that's just how I was looking for an argument with you. Well, I'm open to all sorts of ideas, and I think the I even had this conversation with the same chap I was talking to this morning about the burden of knowledge that I now feel that I have with a few different things uh, in my life. And it's like, what am I going to do with all of this? <laughs> like... It, it, like particularly if you feel like your hands are constrained at certain times. Yep. You're nodding your head knowingly. This is yeah, well, do your best. Uh, Alan, I'm very conscious that you are an incredibly busy, 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 busy man, and uh, I, I'd like to wrap this up to allow you to go to go and do whatever it is that you're going to do for the rest of the day. But before we do so, is there anything that you'd like to finish on for our for our very thirsty knowledge wise audience? Mm, no, I think I think we've covered some key things quite quite well. Actually, you know, there's nothing much that us that wanted to add. I think you've asked some good questions. Well, I'll take that as a massive compliment from you, Alan. So thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Alan Fells. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.